special day for me as well. Kind of not the same as a special day for Bethany, but we're celebrating 18 years of marital bliss today. I don't have anybody here today, but uh, <laughs> Meredith's at the doctor, of course, right? We dropped the kids off at camp yesterday, so we've got a couple of weeks with Sands, the children, and she's at the doctor, and, you know, that's how we're spending our anniversary. So, but 18 years, I know, do the math, I got married when I was 11, I get it. I was young, it was a different time, or whatever. Um, but it's crazy to think about now that I have now known or been with my wife for over half of my life. Like, that's exceptional because we dated for four years before we got married and those kind of things. So uh, it, it's just sort of an, an incredible picture of God's faithfulness. And so I've, I was thinking about that this morning, and I was thinking about the text we're in, and I was thinking about Paul's life and his faithfulness to the gospel. And I looked at my life and my marriage, and I thought about the ups and downs and the struggles and the hurts and the bumps we've had along the way and the journey that it's been and that we stand here 18 years later, 18 years later, not in this perfect picture, but in still this broken, difficult, challenge, amazing, crazy thing. And I feel it echoes a lot of my relationship with Christ. It has these moments where I go, this is the most amazing thing I've ever been a part of. And it has those moments where I wake up and I go, have I broken this thing, right? And, and it's this constant daily saying, I surrender everything I have to make this thing my all. And I think about that in our relationship with Christ. Like if we woke up and said, yes, Jesus, you get everything. And those ups and downs and bumps and bruises and all those things are part of our journey, our, our growing in sanctification, which is a process of being made holy, the process of growing to be more like Jesus. And I look at Paul, as we're going to see today, and I just say, you know, it's an incredible picture of faithfulness when in the middle of rejection and oppression and hatred and slander, you can still look at your Lord and Savior and say, I love you. Like, you are my everything. And that's what we're going to see Paul do this morning. And it, it's a pretty remarkable picture. So if you've been with us over the past 35 weeks or whatever, you know that we started in Acts 1, and we've gone verse by verse. We haven't skipped any. We haven't moved beyond any. We've just sort of uh, gone through them all. And it's been quite the journey of uh, relationships, of incredible miracle moments, and then very difficult things to swallow, deaths and struggle and hurt and hatred. And uh, it, it's, it's a really amazing book because it's not a history story. It's a call. It's your call. It's my call. It's our call together. It's the call of the Christ follower. It's what does life look like if we say yes to Jesus. And last week, uh, we actually, well, I'll go back a couple of weeks. We began the missionary movement, right? We saw that Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church into the world. The very first missionary journey of which we are now sending Bethany to be a part of began Right In that moment where Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church to go and tell the world about Jesus Christ. And they set sail for the island of Cyprus, and they preached the gospel there, and amazing things happened, and difficult things happened. They left that island, and they landed on the mainland, and they traveled in the mountains, and they went to this town called Antioch, and things happened there. And we went through all those scenarios, and, and last week we looked at them leaving the town of Antioch, kind of being run out of town, kicked out of the region. right? And they make it to this town called Iconium. And they get there, and they face pretty much the standard picture for all these missionary journeys. They show up in town. They go to the uh, temple. Some people believe. Some people don't. The ones that don't are typically the Jewish leaders. They get really frustrated. They slander them and uh, kind of say all kinds of things. They get a plot to kill them, and they run them out of town. And essentially, that scenario is going to play itself out over and over. And so Paul and Barnabas leave that town, and they head for a, a couple of towns that are 20 miles south, the towns of Lystra and Derby. And they're going to walk into Lystra, and things are going to look really similar. But some incredible things take place uh, in, our, in our text this morning that I think shape and change how we think about our own relationships with Christ. So we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8, if you've got it. So 
They have fled uh, for their lives, basically, from Antioch to Iconium. They have just left Iconium, and they're about to step foot, or actually, they've already been in the town of Lystra. So if you've got a Bible, open it up, and we'll pray, and then we'll just sort of uh, dive into it and see what happens. Lord, we thank you so much for, um, well, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have a call on our lives. Lord, and that call is to say yes to you. Lord, to surrender our hearts completely and totally to you. Sometimes that call leads us uh, all the way around the world. Sometimes that call leads us to stand up and walk across the room. But nonetheless, it's a call. It's a call to live out our faith in Christ. To live in such a way that is sort of a relentless passion to follow you and that the world may know you. It's not easy. And the promises that come with it are not always comfortable. But Lord, we believe that you are worth all of it and more. And so God, this morning we ask that as we open your word, you would teach our hearts. Just instruct our hearts. um, Teach us something new about yourself and maybe what it means to follow you. Take a moment right now as you sit here and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Just as he prepares you to hear his word, just ask him to teach your heart this morning. Pray for somebody around you, behind you, in front of you, even if you don't know their name. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This whole thing is not just about you. It's about our life and community together. So pray for someone, even if you've never seen them before. Pray that God would move in their life. Lord, we uh, give you all glory and honor this morning and forever. Teach us through your word. Reveal truth to us. We know that we can't open your word and discover anything. You are the revealer of truth. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts this morning. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So at the end of last week, um, there was a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. So they not only wanted to kick him out of town, but they were going to heave rocks upon them until they died. And so uh, they raced out of town, basically escorted out by some other believers, and they left town, and they headed for these towns called Lystra and Derby. They're like sister cities. They're really close together, and they're about 20 miles south of Iconium. So, well, we won't do the whole geography thing, but they've gone 100 miles inland, and they've traveled all the way over across the mountains, and they've gone over to Antioch, and they've, they've traveled 20 miles now south of these. They've been doing a lot of walking, all right? So they walk another 20 miles, and they land in this town. This is where we pick up in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet. He was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up on his feet and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates. Because of the crowd, uh, they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, humans like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past... He he let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops from their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty 
keeping the crowd from sacrificing them. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside of the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. So on some level, it's a similar scenario, right? It's one that we've seen play out time and time again, and we're going to see play out time and time again. Paul and Barnabas, or whoever Paul and his traveling companions are, they show up in a city. They spend some time there. They usually go to the temple. They preach the gospel. Some people believe. Some don't. The people that don't, usually Jewish leaders, get all kinds of stirred up and angry. They stir up the crowd. They slander. They speak against. They, they threaten. They either arrest or abuse or try and kill them. And they either have to leave town or they just stay there in the face of opposition. And it's pretty much a scenario that plays itself out. And at first glance, this is a very similar scenario, except there's a, as you heard, there's a couple of twists in there that are actually really interesting. So we know that Paul and Barnabas had been in the town of Lystra for some time before this event, this healing happens. Because we learn in verse 20, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that there were disciples there, which means that they had been there enough time to have shared the gospel and people had come to know Christ and Paul had, and Barnabas had invested in them. So this wasn't like day one. They had been in Lystra for some time. And it says that Paul on this particular day was preaching, most likely in the temple. That's where he, he would usually go to share. There's always a, a, pretty much always in most of these cities, a small Jewish temple or a small Jewish place where the, the Jewish people that were spread out um, when the northern and southern kingdoms were conquered uh, had basically built a place to worship, right? So uh, they would usually go there because he would at least be able to start begin talking about the Most High God. And, and that's where Paul usually went to, to begin the preaching. So most likely he's at the temple. And sitting there on this day was a man that was crippled from birth. Now, this is actually a very similar story. For those who have been here for a long time, in Acts chapter 3, we have a very similar story where uh, Peter and John were going into the temple in Jerusalem. And as they were walking in, there was a guy sitting by the temple gate right there every day where people would walk through. And he was begging for money, and he wouldn't look at him. And Peter stops, and he looks at this guy, he looks directly at him, and he says, look at me. And he locks eyes with this person who had been lame or crippled from birth, had never walked. And he said, listen, I don't have any money. Silver or gold I can't give you. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And at that moment, that man, having never walked in his life, stood up and he began running and jumping and he ran to the temple. You may remember that story. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Acts, um, mainly for what happens afterwards. But the story itself is incredible. Well, this story is very similar. In fact, it uses some of the very same language if you look closely. Paul stops and he looks at this person who had been crippled from birth, had never walked, and he says the exact same phrase. He looks directly at him and he tells him to stand up and walk. Most likely what Peter's doing here, I mean, sorry, what Luke's doing here is he's trying to draw our attention to the fact that Paul's apostleship has a lot of authority to it. Now, nobody questioned Peter's apostleship. He had spent time with Jesus. But some of the people in those days thought that Paul's authority or his apostleship was in question because he didn't come to know Christ until after the resurrection. Remember, he got saved after Jesus had been raised from the dead. His life changed. When, when in Acts 9, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus in that resurrection appearance, that kind of cool moment where he speaks through the light. Well, well what Luke's probably doing here is giving some light to the fact that Paul and Peter have the same apostolic authority, right? But it's a really cool interaction. We'll look at it in a minute. So he has this moment where he looks at this guy and he says, hey, stand up and walk. Sitting there in the temple or wherever they are, most likely in the outer court of the temple with all these people, right? He looks at him and he says, looks directly at him and he says, get up and walk. Now, this man was most likely not sitting amongst the crowd. 
Uh, like most cultures, like the Jewish culture, even in these Roman colonies, uh, people that were handicapped or that have physical issues were treated with disdain. They weren't seen the same as a person that didn't have an ailment of any kind. The uh, Jewish people believed that they were unclean, that God was punishing them for sin in their life, and therefore they couldn't even be in the assembly. They had to be outside the assembly. It's why by, uh, a person that was handicapped would sit by the gate instead of going into the temple. They would sit there and beg. Well, this culture was really the same. This Roman colonies, they wouldn't let these guys sit with them. So most likely this guy was sitting behind outskirts on the fringes, Paul looks at him, looks directly at him, means locking eyes with him, and he says, get up and walk. And right there, he just stands up, jumps to his feet. Well, the crowd freaks out a little bit, right? Because they've known this guy forever. They've lived in this town all their lives in Lystra, and they've seen this guy every day, and he's never walked before, and they go crazy. In fact, they start believing that Paul and Barnabas are actually gods. They believe that they are Zeus and Hermes who have come down from Mount Olympus to interact with the people. Now, if we know the culture in those days, it's not all that surprising, okay? Because there was a legend uh, that was sort of retold by a really famous Roman poet, a guy by the name of Ovid. And he wrote this in a collection of works called Metamorphosis back right about the time Jesus was born. And in there, he wrote about a legend that had been passed along about how Zeus and Hermes had come down to check on the hospitality of the people that lived in the area. He, they wanted to know how hospitable they were. And so they disguised themselves, and they walked among the people, and they knocked on a thousand doors, house doors, looking for someone that would invite them in to stay. Everybody turned them away. And they finally get to this elderly couple's house, and they knock on the door, and this little couple has very tiny little house, and they have almost nothing and they open the door, and they let them come in, and they share with them their meager belongings, and they let them spend the night. And the legend goes that Zeus and Hermes, Zeus is the, uh, the sort of king of the gods, and Hermes was the messenger of the gods, the proclaimer, right? And the legend goes that they turned that elderly couple's house into the temple, and then a flood, I think it was a flood, if I remember my Greek mythology, right? The flood wiped out the rest of the houses. So this was not too, this legend was written not too far uh, before all this was taking place. And it was said to have taken place in the exact same valley where Paul and Barnabas were. So it's not crazy that when this miracle happened, the people were like, well, we, we're not going to let that happen again. So this is Zeus, and this is Hermes, and we're going to go, and we're going to sacrifice to them. And so they race outside of town to where the temple was, and they get the high priest of the temple of Zeus, right, because they had a temple out there. They bring all these bulls and wreaths. And they're doing all this, and they're going to sacrifice to him. And Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on. They don't speak that native language. But when they started parading in with these bulls and reeds, they just figure it out, and they flip out. I mean, it says that they race into the middle of this giant crowd, tearing their clothes off, right? Which sounds a little weird, but in the Old Testament, when you, you would tear your clothes at any sign of blasphemy, and a blasphemy can come in a lot of different forms. It can come in the form of someone speaking ill against God or someone taking the place of God. So what they were seeing was these people were trying to make them gods or God. And so they raced in the crowd and in opposition to blasphemy just started ripping their clothes clean off, right? Just screaming into this crowd and saying, wait, stop. We are just men, humans like you, just ordinary people. Stop this. We've come with a message. And Paul uses that moment to launch into the message, and he talks about how, how, listen, for a long time, God left the nations up to their own destruction, right? 
but he didn't just ignore them. He gave them evidence of who he was through rain and through the crops and even through joy so that they wouldn't be without excuse, but he left them to chase their own ways. But listen, not anymore. That through the person of Jesus Christ, God has given the opportunity of salvation to all who will believe. This is what we're proclaiming. This is the good news for you all. This is what we're doing. We're nothing special. And we learned there that even the crowd, they had a hard time believing that. And uh, so they still wanted to sacrifice to them, and it just made them all the more angry. Or Paul and Barnabas all the more angry. And then we learned that some of the Jews had followed Paul and Barnabas from Antioch to Iconium and Iconium over to Lystra, which is about 120 miles worth of walking. And they stirred up the crowd there. They got them so angry that they began to stone Paul. So here's this crowd that just wanted to deify, right? Paul and Barnabas, sacrifice bulls to him, and in the blink of an eye, turn and begin to pick up rocks right where they stood and just heave them at Paul. As Paul's talking about, you know, this is what we came for, and this is the message, and they begin to throw these rocks and rocks, and they do it right there in the middle of the city, which is, I mean, out of the norm. Usually when you were going to execute someone, you would take them outside the city, and there was a place of execution, and for stoning, usually it was a cliff. They would push you off and then throw boulders upon you until you die. But what they did here is they just picked up rocks, pelted them at him, and then they drug his body outside the city and threw it in the gutter, right? And then verse 20 says that when the disciples, which we know there's now disciples in the city, they came up and they gathered around him. Everybody else thought he was dead. They gathered around him, and after that he got up and he went back into the city, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then he leaves the next day. So he just goes to Derby, a few miles away. As I was thinking about this text, there's about a gazillion ways we could look at it. We could look at it from idolatry. We could look at it from the standpoint. We could do all kinds of things. But what I was struck with as I was thinking about my own life and what God's teaching me, which is typically how all this works anyway for me when I teach, is just what God is teaching my heart. I was really struck by some things that I see in Paul, how he interacts in this entire scenario, um, that I think are are really powerful for our own lives. And I want to go through them real quickly because these are are things that are really revolutionary, that if we could grasp these things that we see in Paul over the course of this entire interaction, I think it would change a lot of the way that we live and think as followers of Christ. And the first is one that's pretty obvious and one that I've actually lifted up before um, and one that echoes the things that unfolded in chapter 3, and that is how the apostles and Paul, or the disciples in, in this category, Paul, they saw the world differently. There's something about spending time with Jesus that changed the way that they saw the world. So that interaction that Paul has while he's sitting there and he's teaching, and he is teaching in the middle of this gathered place, probably more people than this, but he's, he's teaching to this crowd, he's talking about the gospel and about Jesus and about life, and somehow while he's doing this, his eyes fall on this crippled person, this handicapped person that's in the very back of wherever they are, sitting on the fringes, and he looks at him, Right? He's not any longer focused on the faces that are here, but he's looking at the, the eyes of one person. And he says he looks directly at him. Now, you've got to understand the significance of this, right? I mean, people didn't look at outcasts. You didn't give them the time of day. They weren't worthy of your glance. And in Jerusalem, you weren't even allowed to encounter them. They had to walk, everywhere they walked, they had to shout the words, unclean. So they wouldn't accidentally brush into you. Because if they did, you had to walk outside the city gates and sit down for seven days before you were allowed to come back into the temple. So you didn't even get near them. Well, this culture is very similar. Something was wrong with this person. He was broken, and therefore he deserved to be back there. But 
But Paul saw the world differently. And he looks directly at him. He locks eyes with him. And there's something significant about looking someone in the eyes, isn't there? It gives value. It gives dignity. It speaks to their heart. Most of us avoid eye contact when we're uncomfortable, right? We've done that. The classic example is when you pull up to the, the stoplight and the homeless guy's there and he's got a sign out. When's the last time you looked into his eyeballs? Almost never. Because if I gaze into his eyes, I have to acknowledge, number one, that he's there. And number two, I feel like I have to do something. So I avert my eyes. I pretend like I'm not looking. But see, here's the thing is that looking doesn't mean you have to give anything. Looking actually means that I recognize your presence. And what Paul's doing is he looks at this person in the middle of this crowd as he's saying, I recognize your presence. And he identified right there in that moment that he had a need. It says that Paul saw that he had the faith to be healed. The guy didn't stand up and shout like, heal me, heal me, please. Nothing. He just sat there and Paul saw something in him like Jesus would. He saw that there was something because he looked into his eyes and he could see it. Maybe it was his reaction. Maybe it was the way he looked back. But Paul saw something that Jesus would have seen. And in the middle of this crowd, he speaks directly to him and he says, stand up on your feet. And the guy jumps up to his feet. The reason I find this so amazing and spectacular is because we go through most of our lives with our heads down. We just try and get from event to event to event to event, from thing to thing to thing. If I can just go from three to five to seven to nine, I can fall into bed dead tired and asleep. And most of the times our heads are down. And I mean that both physically, literally, and metaphorically. We're concerned with only things that happen in my seven-foot radius of influence. Outside of that, it's really not part of my purview. Part of being a follower of Christ is being willing to see the world differently. To raise up our heads, to see people for who they are with names and stories, with brokenness, with joy, with things in their life, and be willing to learn their names, look them in the eye, and speak directly to them. But we still see people in categories. We see them as, as handicapped, or we see them as black, or we see them as white, or we see them as rich, or we see them as poor. And we have those categories to find how we give attention to people. And following Christ shatters all of those boundaries. It has to. And what we see in Paul is that he saw the world the way that Peter and the apostles did. They saw it through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus would sit in a crowd like this and he would lock eyes with a broken human in the back. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we've got to see the world differently. We've got to get our head up, take our eyes out of our seven-foot sphere of influence, and start learning people's names. I've talked about this a bunch over the past few weeks. Get to know them, hear their story. And we see it in Paul. The second thing we see in Paul comes in those next few verses where he rejects or rebukes, the word the idea of rebuking, personal recognition. So here comes this parade of people after this incredible miracle, right? And they've got bulls and reeds, and they're going to basically deitize or celebritize Paul and Barnabas. I mean, they are so excited that they want to give them this great honor. Well, all throughout Paul's ministry, we see him rebuking this. In this case, it's extreme. I mean, a lot of times we see Paul shunning personal recognition, uh, recognition shunning uh, any type of like praise or whatever. But this is extreme because they're calling him a god, and Paul knows that there is only one god. And so he tears his clothes, and he shreds them, and he does all that, and the whole bit to the extreme. But here's what I really appreciate about Paul. 
disciples and these people that followed Jesus is that they, at every corner, shed personal recognition. If you read the New Testament, you will see that every single one of these folks that followed Jesus wanted zero fame, zero glory, zero recognition. Right? They didn't want any of it. They wanted every ounce of attention to go to Jesus. Now, this should not be a surprise, right? Because most of us would say, that's humility, and that's what we should do. We should shun all the attention back onto Christ. But we don't live in that culture. The Christian culture that we live in, as I've mentioned over the past few weeks, is a celebritized one. We elevate worship leaders and pastors and bloggers and authors to stratospheres, and while those people and typically, or they don't typically take spiritual recognition, they definitely take the personal recognition. We put our names on everything, websites and Twitter feeds. We churches try and outmarket each other. The reality is, is that we are in a constant fight for personal recognition, personal marketing. We need to get our name out there. Now, in a, in a kind of a business standpoint, you get this, but it transfers to our spiritual lives. We try to get people to acknowledge us so that we can have responses on social media or on blog hits or on website traffic or whatever it is. When we planted this church, I had a buddy, I have this email here, I have a buddy who sent me a book, a book that was written in 2012, right around the time, right after we planted. And the book was called uh, Shameless Self-Promotion and Networking for Christian Creatives, all right? So while the book names the problem, this is what the jacket says, all right? It says this, signed or indie, beginner or seasoned, pro- whether you are an artist, author, actor, pastor, or promoter, or even a church hosting event, you have something or someone that needs to be promoted. That, might, so, that someone might even be you. Whether your platform is national or local, chances are the lion's share of the promotion activity falls on your shoulders. In today's ultra-competitive marketplace, Christian creatives must be heavily involved in promoting themselves and their works at all costs. Now, I get it. You want people to come to your church? You got to mail out a flyer, right? You want people to buy your book? You got to tell them you wrote it, right? I mean, I get the idea of self-promotion. But this is the culture we live in. Listen, if you want to get your name out there, you've got to promote it. You've got to go on that tour. You have to tweet it a thousand times. You've got to do all the things that it takes for people to look at you so that you, right, this is the way exchange we make, can hopefully give the glory to the Lord. That's the exchange we make. But most of the time, that doesn't really happen. Most of it is just self-promotion. We want recognition for the things that we do. It happens in our lives. It happens in the workplace. It happens in our home. We want our spouses, our relations, the people in relationship with, to recognize the things that we do. As I look at this, and I think of the apostles, and I think of Paul, and I think there's not one moment that I see in Scripture where any of them ever wanted any type of recognition. They wrote all these letters, no book tours, right? No special kind of attention. In fact, anytime Paul, anybody said anything great about Paul, he would just shun it. I say all this because we live in a church culture that is fighting over Christians. Every church is fighting for the same group of people to boast and move their attendance numbers. No one's going to say that out loud, but it's just true. Our worship services grow usually not by new believers, but almost always by people that are disenchanted with whatever church they're going to. And I just say this just by way of warning. Like you should be leery of any church or any pastor or any whatever that has to put their name on everything. 
another ministry of Jimmy Lee Farnsworth or whatever. Like just should always, we're Fletch too, as people out there. Anything like that you should be aware of. Paul's sole goal was zero recognition for himself. Just about Jesus. What if we took that and applied it to our own lives? And I know you're not a, an author or whatever, but, but even in your own life, what if this wasn't about glory or recognition for you? What if you did things and no one knew you did them? What if when you gave, you didn't give with a giant check, right? You just gave. What if when someone said they really liked a shirt you were wearing, you just left it on their doorstep two days later? Like, what if we gave in a way that wasn't looking for things and recognition and fame or just a pat on the back? We just served while no one was watching. We just loved people in that way. So we see that, that Paul saw the world differently. We also see that he rebuked personal recognition. One of the things that really jumps out to me here as well is how Paul handled uh, oppression and rejection. Now, one of the lesser talked about things about Paul is that his entire life he faced rejection. Deep rejection. Not just, oh, we hate you, Paul, but like deep, slanderous, awful things about him were said every day of his life. And typically he would wake up and there would be people that wanted to kill him. We saw it last week. They had a plot to stone him and they had to get him out of town. We see it this week. The plot actually worked and they stoned him and thought he was dead. But in between all those physical kind of death threats, there's moments of deep slander and hurt. Now, I don't know you. Like, I know some of you. And I know what you tell me and I know what, depending on the various degrees that I've spent time with you, but most of you, even the ones that I know really well, I don't know the deep recesses of your heart. I don't know the deep places that you've been hurt, the deep places that you've been abused, the deep places that people have taken advantage of you, the deep fears that you have, and all the things in your life that has led up to your inability to trust or whatever. But we've got them. I've got them. We have things in our life that have been torn out. We have part of our hearts that have been ripped to shreds by people. We have been rejected. We have been hurt. My life, though, is easy. Compared to two-thirds of the world, my life is a cakewalk. I have my moments. I have my hurt. I have my things. But even in that, none of that compares to what Paul woke up with every single day. Every day, did he not wake up and just say, oh, you know, today I might be the day that I die, which we get the sense that they're kind of okay with that. But every day he woke up and realized that the majority of the world that I live in believes lies about me. They believe hurtful, hateful things about me. See, I'm okay with people that might want to kill me. Like, for whatever weird reason, that doesn't bother me as much as the fact that people might be gossiping about me behind my back all the time. That shatters my heart. Because I don't think anybody knows how personal all this is to me and my family. And most people would never say anything to my face, but they say it behind backs. Always comes back. And it hurts. And I would much rather someone just threaten to stone me than that. And the truth is, you know what that feels like too. Because it happens in your life. It happens at work. It happens with your family. It happens with your friends. But imagine that a thousandfold every day of your life waking up into that rejection. Every day. And you know what I find amazing about, about Paul is that he never fights slander with slander. He never gets angry and loses it. He just speaks truth, even when it's going to cost him more and more of his own reputation. He never fights for his reputation. He never fights so that they would believe truth about him. He fights so they believe truth. What's really crazy is that there's a group of Jewish leaders that so hate Paul 
so hate him that they followed him from Antioch a hundred miles through the mountain, right, to Iconium. And then 20 miles back over those same mountains south, just so they could create the same gossip and slander about him that they did weeks and weeks and weeks before. They walked away from their lives to follow him around and harass him. Can you imagine living with that? What if every time you moved into a new town or to a new house, a group of people came, and the first thing they did was tell all your neighbors that you were a horrible human? So you try and basically leave town. You leave town again, you go to a new place, and they follow you. And two days later, they show up, they go to your workplace, and they walk up to your boss, and they go, you know what this person did in the town they lived before, when they were before here? Can you imagine living that way? We'd never think about these things. But this is what Paul woke up with. But what I'm rem- what's remarkable here is even if these people traveled 120 miles, he'd never fight slander with slander. He just doesn't care about his own reputation. Most of us, we fight for our name. It's all we have. And that's a lie. As a follower of Christ, you don't belong to you. You're no longer yours, but you belong to Jesus. Your identity is in him and not what the world says. And not what they say about you behind your back. And not all the people that want you to fail or that person that stomped your heart out. Your identity is not in that. It is in Christ. And I love that picture of Paul. Because even in the face of all of it, he just is found in Jesus. So he sees the world differently. He shuns that personal recognition. And he deals with rejection all the time. We also see him having a personal, deep commitment to disciple making. Now, you've got to kind of look in the text a little bit to see this, but it's there. So we know that he had been in Lystra long enough to share the gospel and raise up other believers. Because in verse 20, when he is literally beat to death with rocks, laying in the gutter outside of town, it says the disciples gathered around him. And after that, he got up. Now, I wish I knew what happened in that moment. I mean, how much is left out that is Paul is drug outside of town? And I want you to have that imagery in your head. Like, I want you to imagine what it would look like to be beat to death with rocks and drug outside of town and thrown in a gutter and then be huddled around this guy who had shared the gospel with you, who had changed your life. What you would say, are they praying, are they laying hands, what are they doing? All we know is they gathered around him. One of the lesser celebrated part of Paul's life is the fact that he was committed to disciple making. He is known for his relationship with Timothy and Titus. He not only would walk into a town and preach the gospel, right? But then he would then take those people that said yes to Jesus and he would train them and equip them and raise them up and leave them as leaders in the church in that city before he moved on, of course, unless he was run out of town, which happens sometimes. But the model was just that. It was disciple-making. Most of our churches have lost the art of disciple-making. We've exchanged our worship services for the one-on-one teaching time that should happen with a, an older or a more seasoned person in the faith with a younger person or someone that's newer in their faith. We have exchanged that, and we believe that all the teaching should take place in these 35 to 40 minutes. And my interaction with people comes when I do this or when I go to a small group and somebody else still teaches. But really the call as a follower of Christ comes out of Jesus' call himself in the Great Commission where he says, listen, I want you to go to all the nations, Right? And I want you to basically proclaim the gospel. And I want you to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Jesus' words. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus says, I want you to make disciples, not attendees, not members, 
not converts, but disciples. And disciple-making takes work. And it doesn't take work because of time, but it takes work on your part to say, I want to be relational enough to be involved in someone else's life. To talk scripture, theology, marriage, brokenness, hurt, failure, Jesus. And Paul had so invested already in this community that when he was laying in the gutter, this is the group of people, Barnabas included, that walked out there and kneeled with him and did whatever they did. And in Paul's most desperate most likely dying moment, this is the group of people that kneeled around him. He was committed to disciple-making. You'll hear us talk about in the next few weeks, but we are increasing our passion to get involved in disciple-making. We're going through some training opportunities right now to train disciplers, and our goal is to have replicated one-on-one relationships with people, to be relationally involved in spiritual growth. You'll be hearing more about that. We're starting that process in August. And not to say we're doing it right, but to say we can't get around it in Scripture. Like our goal as a church, my goal as your pastor, is not to get you here so that we can say, man, our room is really full. Like I don't care if you come in this room. Our goal is to get you invested in God's Word and in relationship with people. Discipling and discipled. So that we can seep into the cracks and crevices of society and share gospel with people out there. Paul was committed to it. And finally, wrapping this up out of time, Paul had this relentless commitment to follow Jesus. So Paul's left for dead in the gutter. The disciples gather around his bleeding, broken body. Who knows what happens, right? I still want to know that. But it says after that, in verse 20, I think, he says, but after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, He and Barnabas left for Derby. Now, I don't know what it would take for you, but it would take a lot for me, number one, to even want to get back up. I mean, think about it. For the past months of your life, you've sailed around the world. You've been threatened. You've been slandered. You've been abused. You've had your life almost taken from you. You've been beaten to death with rocks. And now, finally, you're laying outside outside of town, nearly dead. There's that part of my heart that would just say, I'm, I'm done. Like, I don't want to get up. I am beat down, Lord. But for whatever reason, Paul gets up after the disciples gather around him, and he goes back into the city. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't go back. I'd be done with those people. I'd look at Barnabas and be like, hey, if we're leaving tomorrow, will you grab my bag? Because I'm just going to sit out here for a while. There's no way I'm going back in. And it's not like he went back in to see his friends. All of his friends were sitting right there. So why did he go in? Speculation? I think he just went back in to make sure he had finished what the Lord had brought him there to do. No way to really know. But what other reason is there? So the Lord releases him. So he walks right back in to the same people that had broken his life, both physically and emotionally, until the Lord moves him on. This is not how we live. Can you imagine all those people that have hurt you, have spoken behind your back, even people that you loved and you thought you trusted, the things that they've said, you go back to them? Well, you shun them, (laughs) right? All the backhanded things that have been said about you at times on social media and your friendships or whatever, we don't walk back into that city. We gather our things up and we get angry or we get hurt and we live hurt or we get passive-aggressive, or whatever outlet it is that we have. 
But for whatever reason, Paul's relentless commitment to Christ, passion for Christ, takes him right back into those relationships. And I would have loved to have known what took place from that afternoon to the next morning. Did he talk with them? Did he see them? The same people that had thrown rocks? The people that just hours before had wanted to sacrifice to him and believed he was Zeus? How does that go? This is part of my life that I so desperately need. To be able to get up and walk back into the city. Back into relationship with people. Even when it's the last place in the world you want to go. You think Paul wanted to go back in there? Staggering his way back into the city? No way. But he walked back into the city just to leave the next day to go to the next town that God has taken him to. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you just feel beat up. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're worn out. Maybe you feel like the, 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 the kind of world just beat the snot out of you. Because most of us, we've been lied to a lot of our Christian lives. We've been told that if we have enough faith, God will bless us. And that blessing will come in the form of the things that we desire. Right? We talked about the prosperity gospel a lot around here. Right? That if we just trust the Lord and just have faith, God will give you the desires of your heart. He will expand your territory. God will bless you financially. You give us 10, God will give you 100. It's a lie. Ask Paul. Paul said yes to Jesus. He caught a bunch of rocks in the face. And it was a blessing. Why? Not for Paul, but because what Paul gets to see God do. We're going to see how all this plays out. We get to the book of Acts chapter 28. We're going to see Paul in the story in prison. And between now and then, we're going to see him shipwrecked, starved, beaten, abused. And we're going to see him joyful in the middle of the process. And maybe you're beaten up right now and you're just thinking God's forgotten about you. But let me tell you this. Just because things aren't going well by your definitions does not mean God has walked out on you. Sometimes God, for the most difficult and most times the most struggle in our lives. But his promise is that he never leaves us, never forsakes us, never walks out on us. And Paul knew that and his relentless passion to follow Jesus got him up out of the gutter. Not because he was strengthened on his own. He had this community of people that spoke into his life, used by God to speak into his life. He stands up and he walks back into the city. I'll tell you what, I've got none of those things in my life. And I want every one of them. This morning as we close our time in worship, maybe that's our cry. Maybe our cry is, God, what if our life could be echoed through these things? To see the world differently. I mean really differently. To shun personal recognition. To live with conviction in the face of uh, oncoming rejection and opposition. To be committed to disciple making. To get out of just a chair or a pew at church. And get really dirty, messy lives together. And then finally to be so relentlessly in love with Jesus. That it leads us out of those difficult gutter times. Into community and back into the city very relationships and very places that have hurt us the most because we're committed to Christ and our identity is not in me and my getting back and my revenge and, and fighting for my name but instead just in Jesus let's pray together